Welcome to Feminist Erotica, a podcast from Rebellious Magazine for Women. Join Jera, Karen, and Princess for stimulating interviews that explore feminist representations of desire, as well as short and sweet erotic snippets read by the authors themselves. This episode is sponsored by Just the Tip, Rebellious Magazine's inclusive sex and relationship advice column where you'll find interviews with sexuality researchers and educators, as well as compassionate responses to anonymous questions. Check it out at rebelliousmagazine.com slash just dash the dash tip. Welcome back listeners. This is Jara Brown speaking and I am talking with Meg Weber, who is the author of A Year of Mr. Lucky, Thank you, Jara. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, so a year of Mr. Lucky, and this is my synopsis. It covers a year of a relationship that started online dating and is a lot of going back and forth via email. <laughs> and what I think is very typical, like uh, nowish relationships where like you end up getting to know somebody so much in detail online, but unlike other relationships, the online component really continues throughout the, the relationship. That's how Meg and Mr. Lucky continue to get to know each other, but it's also a very explicitly kink relationship. So, so the book covers the kink aspects, the life aspects, through the back and forth, as well as the lived experiences. Does that summarize it pretty well? What I leave out? Yeah. No, I think uh, the only thing you left out is there's also a journey in that book about my coming back to myself as a writer. In the beginning of that book, I hadn't been, I'd been sort of away from my writing life. And through the writing relationship with him, and then all of the extensive processing and analyzing I did of that relationship with him, it really brought me back into, oh yeah, I'm a writer. (laughs) This is what I do. And I decided probably really early on in that process of that relationship that this was very likely going to be a book. Mm. Tell us more about that. Like how, how did you decide that, oh, this is a book? I think for me, I mean, I've always only written memoir. I'm no good at making up stories. And because of both the writing that he and I were doing, I I realized I was joking with a friend and I don't remember if this made it in the book or not. Um, But I spent more time crafting and editing my emails back and forth with Mr. Lucky than I probably did on all my graduate school papers combined. (laughs) Like I was serious about what needed to be in these emails and I hadn't crafted anything that specifically in a good long time and it was Mm. fun. And also the emotional processing and work that I did to hold on to myself in that relationship because there was a whole lot of needing to hold on to myself. That writing also felt good to me. I came into writing a long time ago as in journaling. And so a lot of the pieces that are narrative in the book were blog posts. I had a really private blog, but it was mostly for me to figure my shit out about this relationship. And then, and then I just went from there and workshopped it with some folks and and turned that source material into 
material that could actually be a book because they're not the same thing. <laughs> and I had to learn that sort of the embarrassing hard way. What material did you, can you give an example of something that you realized just wasn't like book worthy or? Yeah, a good example of that is the amount of email that's in the finished book is tiny. <laughs> Especially my emails, I was really wordy. I had a lot to say. I was constantly trying to engage him and keep him interested. I had to cut out so much of that email content in order to make it readable as a book to anybody and, and ask anybody to care about it. And so that was challenging for me at first because I was so close to the story and it all meant something to me, but that didn't mean it was going to mean something to a reader who doesn't know either one of us. So much of our lives now evolve around some sort of digital correspondence, whether it's text messages or emails or Facebook Messenger or OkCupid messages. And I think about that a lot as a writer, especially as a nonfiction writer. Like, how do you put these messages out there in a way that is craftful? So it sounds like a lot of it for you was just editing down correctly. Was there anything else, other considerations about, you know, how you, how you make correspondence a living thing? in a book? That's a really good question. One thing I was really grateful for in the process of writing this book is that Mr. Lucky gave me permission early on to use his emails as they were. And that was such a relief to me because I could have gone back and constructed his emails and therefore constructed him as a character. But I was really grateful that I didn't have to because he built himself as the character that he is. And I appreciated getting to just have that authenticness of his words. There was, there was something you said that uh, reminded me of a passage early on that you talked about how your, I think it was your subbing in particular was, it wasn't just about that relationship, but it was about you figuring things out for yourself. I, I think I know what part you're talking about. And I was referencing my early involvement in BDSM. And, and for me, I mean, it's really hard to separate out the analytical therapist part of me from any other part of me. And, and it could have been the first top that I played with he was talented. He knew what he was doing. He wasn't super compelling to me as a, a human, uh, but I appreciated what he could teach me. And I knew that going into kink was for me. And it was for me to understand my relationship to power and my relationship to submission. And for me to find a way to inhabit my body and process shit. <laughs> Uh, and I, I don't know how in the very beginning I knew that kink could do that for me, but I did know it and I was right. <laughs> and that's what I got out of my relationship with that first top and really every top that I've played with before. And the difference with Mr. Lucky is that I actually was infatuated with him as a person, as well as what he did to me when I was subbing to him. Right. This is probably a good moment. Would you like to read one of the excerpts? Either one. Okay. Yeah, sure. I'll read uh, I'll read one of them. 
So this is a piece called Owning Me. Owning me was written into the game, but not like this. Not a splintered heart and brittle distance, not unmet longing. I wasn't supposed to fall in love. I want to read a book he hasn't written yet. One that explicates the poem of us and explains how I got under his skin in ways he doesn't usually allow. His clever prose would pretend disdain for my verbose devotion, but belie the truth that he loves every syllable. I want his reflections on the half dozen scenes we did together. Scenes he crafted and delivered upon me with exquisite creativity. I want to explore the intersections of our words and bodies of power and attunement of submission and silence. I'm waiting for patience and for words to convey the synergy of emotions roiling within me. Sadness sings a solemn, lonely song. Anger is acutely aware of his absence. Curiosity cracks my composure when he won't communicate clearly. His radio silence is the wrong kind of sadism. Minutes bleed into hours, hemorrhage into days, flood into weeks. I'm waiting to let go, to let what we had become just a collection of memories in the past tense. Still, the weight of waiting wears on me again. He is distant and guarded, but it wasn't always this way. In the beginning, oceans of words spilling from two directions tossed intrigue and interest between us. There were rules of engagement, but my heart doesn't follow rules. The wrong part of me is owned by him. Buying it back will cost every ounce of courage I can produce. I will pay for it with every pore of worthiness I embody. I will need to remember that a broken heart is not the end of anything. It is a beginning. Thank you so much. It's a, such a gorgeous section. And it's, it's, I love hearing people read out loud. I feel like you just end up getting something totally different out of it than when you're just reading on a page. Meg will read another excerpt in a bit that's uh, about a specific scene and it's a lot more actionable, whereas this one is a lot more about the emotional journey. Tell us a little bit about flowing back and forth between what's going on in your head and then, you know, the time grounded writing. That's a really good question. Part of what I had to do throughout this whole relationship was, I mentioned it before, kind of hold on to myself. Um, I wanted more in the relationship than he did. I was more invested. Um, I had more processes happening for me about the relationship than he did. Mm -hmm. Partly that's because of who I am. Partly mm -hmm. it's because of our different levels of interest in each other. And so for me, the writing that I did was really important for keeping me grounded. Mm -hmm. And I don't appear super grounded in a lot of that writing because I was floundering. I was, you know, I was in love with him. The other piece that's in the book that feels like this is the right time to mention is that in the time that I was involved with Mr. Lucky, 
one of my siblings died by suicide. And so when I first wrote this book, I had the fortunate experience of getting to workshop this book with Lydia Yuknovich. Mm. And in that workshopping with her, when I first wrote about my sister's suicide in the book, I'm writing along about Mr. Lucky and my obsession. And then I just sort of dropped it in there. Oh yeah, and by the way, my sister died by suicide. And then I kept obsessing about Mr. Lucky. And Lydia, in her lovely way, just looked at me and said, yeah, it doesn't work that way. (laughs) You can't just drop that into the middle of this narrative and not give us more about your sister and your family. And, And so, I really had to go back and add those other elements of where I learned about submission and things like that in my conservative Catholic family and what my relationship with my sister means to me in order for the reader to understand my devastation when she dies. And so that is the other emotional journey that I'm on while I'm obsessed with this top that is really distant from me. (laughs) Totally. And I think, I don't know, I relate, and I'm sure a lot of folks relate to this process of not being able to sort through your feelings around a relationship and grief that's happening in other parts of your life. The things that you feel in a, a romantic or a sexual relationship are so much more mysterious and hard to grasp sometimes than relationships that even have more depth and meaning. I have something to say about that too. My therapist who's in the book, she has a pseudonym in the book, she's Gail. And I remember week after week meeting with her and, you know, she would patiently listen to whatever was going on with Mr. Lucky. And, and then in her beautiful way, she would look at me and say, I wonder if you want to talk at all about your sister and what's happening there. And this is a therapist I've worked with off and on for gosh, probably 20, over 20 years now. So she knows me really well. And she was very delicately trying to shift my focus from, yes, I know there's Mr. Lucky. He's super compelling. And this is one of the biggest examples of grief that you have ever experienced we might want to pay attention to that. (laughs) And start to try to separate them out in a way. Exactly. So there's a, a choice that memoirs have to make, whether or not, as you write, you sort of stick with that moment and your character is living it as if there is no future. Or if you take this broader form when you're writing that like you, you're allowing yourself as the writer to look back in retrospect, you know, some odd years later. And it feels like a lot of your book, a lot of the writing does not do that. It really sticks with the moment. And I'm curious about that decision for you. I love that question. Yes, this book in particular, I really, partly because I wrote it as I was living it, but also I really wanted to be in those moments. And I wanted the storytelling to not be in the middle of the book. I didn't want that to hold where Mm -hmm. I was going to get to. Of course I was gonna get over him at some point. A, of course the relationship was going to end probably terribly and B, I was going to survive. That was no surprise to me. And I wanted to be sort of in that anguish and in that uncertainty because I think 
as a person and as a writer, I wanted to see myself struggle through it and get to the place where I was okay. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to insert that voice of, but really I'm going to be okay <laughs> in the middle. Right, right. And was it hard that also as a therapist to not add, add that therapy level on top of it too? Like, yeah, it was, I think it was a really good experience for me in this book to, to let myself be a human who happens to be a therapist. Uh, I don't always strike that balance. Uh, I'm working on a second memoir that picks up where this one left off. And I definitely think I use more of that other voice that you're describing in what will be the next book. It's a whole different format, but I definitely allow my therapist persona to be more present in the, in the narrative. Nice. That's awesome. I mean, it shows range, which is exciting. <laughs> right. I can do more than one thing. That's right. <laughs> so let, let's jump into the other excerpt. Okay. So this is from the middle of one of the scenes. I forget at this point which scene it's from. He runs one hand up my leg, handling his property with rough authority. Without warning, he shoves two fingers inside my cunt. Mm, yes, I whisper, dissolving into his touch. He fucks me only enough to leave me wanting, then extracts his fingers and climbs onto the bed beside me. He knots a slender piece of rope around the center of the headboard and trails it toward me along the bed. Bring your hands together above your head, he orders. I flatten my forearms against the mattress and arrange my hands as instructed. My wrists are bound together and secured to the headboard. I breathe in and exhale slowly, relaxing into this bondage. He is slow and deliberate as he unbuckles his belt. It slides through the loops of his jeans with a soft whoosh. I tense, a mix of fear and anticipation. He's never used a belt on me before. One of his hands rakes through my hair and pulls it taut. My breath retracts and I hold it there. The first strike of his belt lands across my backside. I want to shrink away from the sting, but I don't move. It takes all my concentration to remain still. Again and again, his belt lashes against my body. It is almost unbearable, sharp and biting against the tender flesh of my inner thighs. No longer able to hold still, I struggle against the bonds holding me in place. He pauses. His flat palm skims across the welts rising up on my ass and legs. How many strokes was that, whore? Damn it, I mutter under my breath. This is a standing joke between us. He knows the impact interrupts my ability to count. I have no fucking idea, sir. Well then, we'll just have to start again. So the timing of that is is so well done. And I well, I guess very broadly, like what what challenges did you face about writing really physical scenes like that? What was hard? I think the most difficult thing for me about those things, writing those scenes is 
I never want to write enough about my body. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to write a graphic scene like that without actually describing the body that is having things done to it. Right. And that's almost always the feedback I get in first drafts of pieces like that. That's great. Excellent dialogue. Where's your body? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was it difficult to to write about his body or did that come natural? Naturally. It's easier for me to describe someone else's body, particularly someone's body who I'm obsessed with. (laughs) That's easy. I could go on about that for days. So yeah, that part was easier. And it's also tricky. I wanted to write about the kink and I wanted it to read well and I wanted it to sound sexy. I wanted it to sound accurate. And then there was this other level of, I'm not just writing my book for kinksters. Mm -hmm. I'm writing it for other people. And so I wanted to write the kinky stuff in ways that didn't scare people away. Mm, Yeah. And so that part was challenging too, in terms of deciding what words to use to describe body parts and also how to describe what was happening physically Mm -hmm. uh, when it's things that folks who aren't into kink might be scared of. While still remaining honest to the scene. Exactly. So how, how did you do it? (laughs) You know, I just, most of this book, the early drafts were written. Um, I took online classes uh, through mm-hmm. the Literary Kitchen with Ariel Gore. Okay. And, you know, I was in classes where we would have a weekly assignment of 2,500 words. So this book was really written 2,500 words at a time. Mm-hmm. And I would just make myself describe what happened. Mm-hmm. I would make myself find action words and descriptions that matched the experience. And a a big part of the way I can be as accurate as I am about what happened in scene four versus scene two, and did he actually say that to me, is because I would come home at the end of a scene and I would write notes. I would basically write up my responses to the scene. Um, I would download as much of the dialogue and the, you know, the play-by-play as I could. Because again, I knew I needed to process it, but I also knew I was writing a book. So I needed all of that material. And that served really helpful because by the time I was going through edits, you know, these scenes were six years ago. I have no idea in this moment what he said to me in scene number three. Right, right. He did right after scene number three happened. You were talking about not wanting to scare folks that are less have less experience with kink. So what did you modify for that? Or did you decide not to? Or Mostly I didn't modify very much. I decided that the way to be the least scary for people was for them to be involved with and trust me as a narrator. Even if they don't understand the kink, and I've gotten this feedback from different readers, they could tell by my responses to it that I felt safe. I was exactly where I wanted to be. I was enjoying myself and that that gave them permission to relax a little bit and not freak out about what they were reading. Even if if it were them in that situation, it would not work for them. 
it worked for them because I was telling them all along, I want this, this is why I want this, this is why this makes sense to me. So then they could be happy for that character that she was getting what she wanted. That makes sense. When you realized that this book was going to be published, it was going to be made public, what kinds of decisions did you have to make about being a parent and a mental health professional and having something very explicit out there? One of the biggest things that I wrestled with was what name was I going to put on this book? Names are complicated for most people for lots of reasons. The name that I use in my clinical world is the same last name as my kid and my ex-partner. We're divorced, but we still have the same last name. And previously to this book coming out, I have always published the most, I don't know, out there, racy, kinky stuff under a pseudonym that is not my name that I use for my clinical practice. But then I also started writing other stuff that isn't necessarily kinky under the last name that I grew up with. And so most of my writing profile is under that name. And I really went back and forth about, this is my first memoir, my first book ever to be published. I really wanted to put my name on it. I didn't want it to be anonymous in my, with my pseudonym. And I'm from a really big conservative Catholic family. And most of us live in the area where I grew up, where I grew up and still live. I was really worried about what my siblings would think of that. My parents have both died, so I no longer have to worry about what they think about my writing. That's a separate thing that I'm not concerned about anymore. But I was with my siblings and cousins. and uh, But ultimately, I decided it's my book. It's my story. I'm not ashamed of anything that I did or wrote about. I'm going to put my name on this book. So that was the biggest thing. And then related to that, in telling some of my sister's story, I had to make the decision whether or not I was going to use her real name in the book. And ultimately, I did decide. There's two people I write about in the book that um, that are dead um, or die during the course of the book. And I used both of their real names because they're gone. And I felt like I had permission to do that. And then other than that, about like with my kid and things like that, I mostly keep my writing life separate from my kid. I also mostly keep my writing life separate from my clinical life. Some of my clients know that I'm a writer as well as a therapist, but I don't, because I'm not publishing under the same name, it's not super easy to find. It's not also that hard to find. If anybody was trying, it's easy to connect my names. Your therapy practice it focuses on queer and kink clients. Is that right? It does. Yeah. I work with a lot of folks who are queer and or trans or somewhere in those communities Mm -hmm. and folks who are, you know, in polyamory or non-monogamy and kinky. So there is also a little bit of safety in that, that my clients understand the need for discretion and privacy and are for the most part, if they do stumble upon my work, I think they're going to be respectful of it. Yeah. I talked to so many, it it reminds me a lot of a lot of conversations I have with mental health therapists that are kinky that have all these issues with, you know, like, do you play in 
public spaces where you write, might run into clients and there's just so many concerns or it, it. Yeah, there definitely are. And I live in Portland, which is a small town pretending to be a city. And then if you're involved in, in kink or queer communities or writing communities, it just makes the whole communities seem so small. And yeah, yeah I definitely <laughs> feel that. I don't play in public in Portland. I, right. Just because I will run into a client. It's just a matter of which one, not will I. Yeah. 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 What's something unexpected that you've learned from writing this book and publishing it? This being my first book and my first attempt to um, put something out in the world through, I tried to go through the traditional publishing route of finding an agent and ended up, you know, I, I lost track, but I think I probably had this manuscript in front of 40 different agents and I got a lot of really positive response and I also got a lot of we have no idea where we would how we would sell this because it's it's memoir with erotic content but it's not really erotica but we don't know what to do with it it's beautiful we don't know what to do with it and so I ended up approaching a small press who had published some some smaller pieces of mine and it's a press that's kink focused. So they weren't gonna be scared away from my content. And I think for me, what's been really important as a, a new writer or a new to publishing writer is there were definitely things I had to let go of in order for this book to see the light of day, like a whole bunch of email in the book. <laughs> um, but I also, there were things I got to hold on to. There were, you know, there are some editorial decisions and there are pieces of this book that I'm just more attached to than others. And for me, it felt really important. I mean, one of the takeaways of this whole book for me is remembering to use my voice and to speak up for what I need. And that was really useful for me in this process. So you can find more about Meg Weber, the writer at Meg weberwriter.com and you can follow Meg on Twitter at Meg8Weber. Is there anywhere else where people should look to find you? I'm on Instagram too. I don't know okay. if that um, but that would mean I'd have to be able to rattle off my Instagram handle <laughs> right this moment. Um, I think it's MegWeber8 at uh, Instagram. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks again and good luck with the launch. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jara, for having me on, and I appreciate it. Feminist Erotica is a podcast from Rebellious Magazine for Women, hosted by Jara Brown, Princess McDowell, and Karen Hawkins. If you have an idea for a future episode or want to share your thoughts, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at feministerotica at rebelliousmagazine.com. Follow us on Instagram at Feminist Erotica Podcast on Facebook at Feminist Erotica, and on Twitter at Feminist Erotic. And make sure you subscribe to us wherever you devour podcasts.